Hello and welcome to the Downtown Drash, a podcast exploring the weekly parasha. My name is Dr. Michal Bitton and I am the Rosh Keila of the Downtown Minyan. I'm here with my podcast co-host and colleague, Rabbi Joe Wolfson, JLIC Rabbi at the Bronfman Center of NYU. Before we begin today's recording and discussion of the Torah portion of Baalot Cha, I think we have to start off by acknowledging what a hard and difficult week this has been really across the world, but certainly in America. But at the same time as it being hard, it's been an extremely important week as well. And we aren't going to be inflicting that heavily upon the Torah, which we're going to be discussing and learning today, but it's definitely going to be something which is present. Michal, how are you? Uh, I, I'm good, Rabbi Joe. Thank you. Thank you for asking. Like you said, it's been a a challenging week in some in some ways. Uh, also, like you said, an important week. I think um, that this national reckoning that we're having right now with questions around race and racism in America is a morally urgent and necessary one. Um, and I'm excited right now to learn Torah together and and see how Torah can nourish us and sustain us uh, at this at this moment. Amen. So, Michal, tell us what is in the parasha. Right, so we are right now, this Shabbat, we're reading Parashat Be'alotcha. It's the third parasha in the book of Midbar, in the book of Numbers. And I would say it's, it's a really, it's a turning point in this book. The first five aliyot of the parasha uh, continue the theme of um, very orderly and positive, optimistic journey in the desert towards the promised land. So in this first five aliyot, we learn about the commandment for the menorah, the, the candelabra, is that the word in English? To be uh, lit daily by the Kohen Gadol, by the high priest. We learn about the purification process of the Levites. We learn about Pesach, Passover, and Pesach Sheni, what happens for those who couldn't, they weren't ritually pure to celebrate Passover on time. Can they have like a makeup Passover a month later when they are able to do so? Uh, and we we encounter actually the moment in which the Israelites uh, begin moving, begin journeying in the desert. They leave Sinai uh, and they follow a, a cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night, uh, again, towards the promised land. We learn about um, Chovav uh, Itro, who is Moshe's father-in-law, um, and how um, Moshe urges him to, to try and stay with the people of Israel. So all of these first five aliyot are positive, they're orderly, there's a certain, uh, you know, if I was putting like a background music, it would be an optimistic, things are great, let's move forward kind of a, kind of a, um, mood. But there is a change. The last two aliyot uh, take a, a sharp turn. The people, the focus begins to be on the people and the people of Israel start complaining. And they, but when I start, say they start complaining, I say so because this becomes a running motif throughout the rest of the book of Amidbar. Uh, in this parasha, they complained about the man they received. They want actually, they want to have meat instead. They begin remembering Egypt, where they were slaves, but where they say things were better. Um, and it really, it, it includes a breaking point. Uh, Moshe gets very upset at the people. Uh, eventually, Hashem sends them um, quails. Uh, but again, that's not something positive. Um, we also have... Um, a redistribution of leadership. Moshe basically tells God, I cannot do this alone. Uh, and Hashem has a plan in which, um, you know, a divine spirit is kind of shared with 70 other elders. And there's a couple of other people, Eldad and Meidad, who also get um, 
sort of prophecy. It's very, very interesting in terms of leadership. I'll say one more thing in this parasha, and then we should dig into some themes. At the end of the parasha, we have Miriam and Aaron, who are Moshe's siblings, uh, who engage, uh, who talk badly about Moshe. Uh, and, and I think that's a really interesting moment as well, that the parasha ends with that very individual uh, family moment around Lashon Ara speaking badly about each other. But with all this, let me ask you, Rabbi Joe, with all of these different themes, um, what, what stands out to you? Well, I, I think this is a this is a case where the the structure summary that you just gave actually is the theme. This is one of the major axis points around which all of Sefer Bamidbar seems to turn. For me, this parasha is so perfectly constructed because you have weights on each side, like a scales. This parasha. And it is a contrast of order versus chaos. It's a contrast of um, a beautiful vision of the way in which the world should be or could be, and an absolutely unsparing depiction of the reality of the way in which the world is. I just sort of find find that 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 contrast, that clash, so so fascinating and, and so so powerful that we are presented with both. There's this amazing Gemara. Sorry, Michal, yeah. No, but I just want to clarify. You said order versus chaos. Are you saying order versus chaos or are you saying like ideal planning and then the actual reality? Um, that, that's, that's great. I think, I think I'm saying the latter. I think you just put it, you just, you just put it well. I think the Torah presents us with its vision of what it would like to be. And then its vision of what actually is. And then of course, both are the, the Torah. The Torah wants to present the dream as well as the reality. Right. And I think part of what's going on here is that there's different point of views going on. It's not only dream versus reality. Maybe the beginning is really what the leaders hoped for. And maybe the last two aliyot is what the people are experiencing, which shows us a real significant gap and rupture. What happens when you have certain narratives of what the leadership is hoping for, the leadership is thinking, the dominant narratives of a society, of the way we think reality is. And then you have the murmurings of the people who are rising up and they're saying, this is not what I'm experiencing. Interesting. I'm not sure I would that I would sort of hang it on the difference between leadership versus the people. Although, although of course that does work. But there are, there are many people, small people such as such as ourselves, who also have dreams for what an, a nation, what a national story can be like. And we may also be living under the under the illusions of that of that perfection. And in fact. We'll see in this week's parsha one of the most astonishing statements ever from a leader, from Moshe, in terms of um, decrying his obligations. Have I given birth to this people? He says. Do I do I need to breastfeed them? He he is he is under no illusions as to the as to the the perfection or the imperfection of of the society around him. There's this amazing Gemara, um, Michal. I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on. Um, it, it's in Masechet Shabbat, and it, it draws on this fascinating detail in, in the text. Um, anyone who's ever seen a Torah scroll knows that um, as, 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 the, as Jewish people, we don't go in for illustration in our holiest text. The Torah does not have pictures. It does not have, have colors. Um, it is literally just the text. And perhaps the closest it gets to an exception to that is 
is our parasha. At the exact moment of this break between, as you described, the first half of order and the second half of, of complaints and, and breakdown, we have these two verses. As Moshe, as the Aaron would journey forward, Moshe would say to the people, Kuma Hashem, you might recognize these from whenever the ark is open, arise God, scatter your enemies, and when you rest, come to rest, Israel shall rest as well. Beautiful verses, but around these two verses are placed two, um, what are, seem to be inverted uh, nuns, the letter nun. So these verses are actually bracketed. And, what, and that's an extremely strange detail, which we don't ever really have normally. And what those, those nuns mean, those inverted uh, nuns, these bracketing, what their significance is, is, is debated by the Gemara. One of the um, opinions is that this bracketing is there in order to show that this is a what's called Sefer Bifneatzmo, a, a, a book in its own right, just these two verses. And the other opinion is that actually it's not a book in its own right, but rather the brackets are there in order to uh, divide between two punishments. The first, the second punishment being the obvious things that follow the complaints that Israel give. The first punishment, this is a fascinating one, being the leaving of Harasinai, the departure from God's presence at Sinai is itself considered a sin. And so to divide between the two, we have these inverted nuns. What, what, what do you hear in either of these interpretations at this get coming at this tense moment? Right. So, so there's one interpretation is really about this being a, a crucial dividing point. There is not only a difference, it's actually different books. <laughs> and the second has to do, I think, um, really uh, interestingly with that it wasn't only complaining, it was also leaving Sinai. Let, let me comment on the second. I think there's something so so powerful there. The, the Gemara is basically telling us here that, I'm trying to think about the right way of putting it, like in the absence of good or in the absence of moral teaching or connection with God, that is perhaps when we when we evolve in a place that's not necessarily a positive, right? Um, that we wouldn't have the, the poor note of the... Um, of the complaining um, against God if we wouldn't have left Sinai. But 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 again, Rabbi Joe, my question is, we were supposed to leave Sinai. The plan was never to stay at Sinai, right? That, that was never the, the plan. So what is Zagmarat trying to tell us here that it was a Puranut to leave Sinai? Was it maybe that we were supposed to leave it physically but not spiritually? And that the tragedy is that we did both. There's this beautiful um, midrash uh, on this leaving of Sinai, Katinok Shabarach Mibet Hasefel, as a child runs away from school, um, which is so amazing because it's so timeless that idea. Wait, Rabbi Joe, explain explain exactly what that means. I love the midrash, but say it again. Explain what it means. Katinok uh, Israel leave Har Sinai. Katinok Shabarach Mibet Hasefel, as a child runs, flees from school. You imagine a child at the end of their day of school, back in a previous uh, ideal era when children were able to leave school and walk home by themselves, the child runs down the street. So Sinai is compared to the school, Israel leaving Sinai compared to that child fleeing. I think what I hear in that, and help me expand expand the, the mashal, the metaphor, I think what I hear in that is that 
Harasunai is so necessary. It is the equivalent of education. It is the, a person's schooling. But it also has an intensity to it and a heaviness to it that the child, in our case, the Jewish people, are just unable to, to, to cope with, to put up with. It's a pressure which has to burst. Interesting. I wasn't reading it so much as a pressure that has to burst. <laughs> I was thinking more that all of this journeying in the desert and all of these geographical locations are really symbols and metaphors. Uh, and Sinai is this moment of deep covenantal connection with God and clarity and feeling sustained by relationship. And perhaps running away from Sinai, it's not only walking towards the promised land, it's also walking away from from the moment of, uh, of clarity in terms of, uh, of relationship. Um, but, but with that, Rabbi Joe, I do want to comment on something else uh, that, I, that I think a lot about. And it's one of my pet peeves with Bamidbar, not with the book itself, but with the way we talk about it. Um, th- there's a certain, I think that we have a caricature of the people. We talk of these people as a people who are just complaining for no reason. It's the poor note. It's this awful thing that basically um, is, is, is terrible and it's filled of lack of gratitude to God and, and to Moshe. And while that is certainly uh, true and it's an important way to read about the text, I, I wonder what would our learning of Pamidvar look like if we took the people more seriously and if we encountered them more generously. Why are they complaining? Why, why, why is this so hard? Why is the journey so hard? If we were to, for one second, just say we're seeking to understand, not to judge, just to understand. Why are they complaining, right? Why, are they, why do they want to go back to Egypt? where they were enslaved, where their baby boys were going to be killed and thrown into the river. There must be something really significant psychologically, sociologically, some existential sense of, um, of things not being what they should be, of, of dreams being raptured that are leading to all this complaining. And I don't think we usually ask these questions as we read Bamidvar. I think that at least the spaces where I've been at, um, we focus much more on the leadership, uh, we focus more on kind of saying the, 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 the murmurings of the generation that died in the desert, as opposed to ask, what can we learn from them? So that's, that's something that I'm, that I'm sitting with. It's such a fascinating question. I remember my mother once teaching me a phrase from, I can't remember who the scholar was, and I can't even remember which genre it was, but the seduction of failure. How how seductive, how enticing it can sometimes be to say, I can never do that, to always give up. That, you know, as Homer Simpson once said, uh, trying is the first step to failure. And Egypt, therefore, you know, amazingly able to forget the actual brutal tyranny and persecution which it involved, is re- represents to the people a stage of their life where they didn't need to be concerned about trying and potentially failing. They were unable to control anything of themselves. Their agency was, was, was nil. But Midbar is the first moment where they actually have to try and try and make it, and that's something terrible. So, so you're offering a potential diagnosis that this angst by the people has to do with what does it mean when you're not you know, in Egypt and you actually have the possibility of failure in front of you. 
I think you might even sort of see that in, in the Midrash itself, this the Midrash comparing them to a child, Ketinok Shabarach Mi Beit HaSethel, and, uh, and Bamidbar as a story of growing up and of, of the, the terrible difficulties of, of taking responsibility for one's life, not just as an individual, but as a society and as yeah. a people. I, I mean, I'm also, that, that's, I think, really fascinating and, and compelling. Um, one of the things that I'm thinking about is what does it mean to have um, dreams and narratives and to have those break down in front of you, right? So I can just imagine all of these families of, um, who were slaves in Egypt, uh, maybe as they see what's happening in front of them with Moshe and with the templates, they start dreaming about freedom and what does life look like on the other side. And I don't think any of them freedom looked like a journey in the desert in which this wasn't what they dreamed of. It wasn't what they dreamed of. And and I, and, and you know what? I mean, I, I, even as a mom, I can just imagine the anxiety and the, the sheer fear and trepidation of walking in the desert, having no clue where you're going, not knowing you have the man that comes daily, but you have no way to promise your children that you would have how to feed them and clothe them next week. I mean, you have God's promise, but that's not always easy to remember. So, so there's something to me really deep here about dreams, nightmares, about Egypt as being the place in which the dreams weren't raptured yet. The, you know, preparing for this discussion, it's been hard also to not think about the context of where we are right now at this moment in June of 2020 in America. And our parsha captures sort of so well the dissonance between the way in which a society should be, the way in which a society is supposed to be, and the horribly messy lived reality of, of its members. And the fact that the Torah captures both, I think it, it speaks very, very truly and, and elegantly to, 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 that, to that relationship. And maybe to go back to the other opinion in the Gemara, that the bracketed verses are sefer more are to, to capture this sort of vision of perfection as its own book, this vision of what could be, what hopefully one day will be, even as it is not now, but to not forget what that ultimate vision is, even as we are completely honest about the reality in front of us. Yeah, yeah, I think that I think that um, that's really beautiful. And, uh, and and again, thinking of this current moment, I think part of the questions that we're asking ourselves is not only what's what's the broken reality in front of us, but what is the dream? And and our society has conflicting and competing dreams that we're going towards and also conflicting tactics, even if we share the same dreams about how um, how to get there. Uh, Rachel, I wanted to move to a different place in the parasha. Uh, again, I'm, I'm thinking a lot about what's happening in our world right now. Um, I want to just, you know, note the, the episode that the parasha ends with. And I'll just read the pasuk, pasuk Aleph, the first pasuk um, of chapter 12. Miriam So Miriam and Aaron spoke about Moshe. Al odot aisha akushit asher lakach ki isha kushit lakach. About the isha kushit, the, how do I say it in English? Kushite woman? Am I saying it right? It's usually translated as, uh, into modern English as uh, as uh, Ethiopian. Eth- right. Um, and, and different, Kush is Ethiopian. Yeah, different translations are different things. 
that he married, the Shalakach, because she was an Ethiopian or Kushite. I hope I'm saying this. Sorry, I'm like, um, English is my third language, so you'll have to forgive me. Kisha Kushit Lakach. Uh, so they're, they're basically speaking about him because of his wife. And we know his wife is uh, Tzipora, even though um, her name is not, doesn't, isn't written here in this, in this Pasuk. And basically this episode evolves uh, into them kind of speaking uh, about Moshe. We kind of unclear exactly what they were saying badly about him. Was it about his leadership, about them not having the same leadership? How does this relate to, to his wife, this Ethiopian wife uh, that he took? Um, and we also learned that the, the Torah text tells us in the same context that Moshe was very humble, uh, the humblest man, and that God ends up punishing uh, Miriam, basically, for, I mean, he rebukes both of them, and he ends up punishing, uh, God ends up punishing Miriam with Tzarat um, for speaking badly uh, about Moshe. And the reason that I want to bring it up is that this context matters right now. Again, we, we said that our, our nation is having, our nation and our world is having a, a reckoning with questions around race and racism. And, and this pasuk is kind of ambiguous. What does it mean that Miriam was talking about Moshe and his Ethiopian wife? Is there something about her skin color that she looked different that actually was relevant uh, to this discussion that Miriam is having? So, so what are your thoughts, Rojo? I think it's interesting to point out before we share our own thoughts on it, that the um, ethnic background of Moshe's wife does not actually feature that prominently in the classical commentaries on this section. There are those who put the focus on a different point entirely, one which you briefly referenced, the next verse of God has also spoken to us, Miriam and Aharon, and our status should be an improved one, in which case it's, it's, a, it's a sin of pride and arrogance on their part. But and just to, I just want to make sure that we understand, Rabbi Joe. So you're basically saying one way of reading this is that the real argument, the real complaint has to do with leadership and with status and with ego, not necessarily with his wife. That's right. That's right. And that's actually a very compelling reading uh we're, we're you know we're used to learning maybe maybe those of us who grew up in ashkenazi education systems and uh, were always told about the chofetz chaim we, we we're used to you know, learning that this is all about lashon hara evil speech there is a compelling argument that it's not at all and that uh, in fact if you look throughout the tanakh the bible as a whole this sarat this leprosy comes actually always in cases of a person expressing some sort of arrogance and pride, some sort of claim that they should be some jealousy of a position that somebody else holds. Uh, there are multiple stories which, which demonstrate that. But even those who do put the emphasis on the previous verse, the speaking about Moshe's wife, frequently have actually an alternative interpretation. Rashi's one actually is they're not speaking bad of Moshe's wife at all. They're speaking badly of Moshe and how he has treated his wife because of the obligations of leadership. He has divorced her, is the Midrashic reading of it, and his, this, they, they, this captures a tension between a person with great communal responsibilities and the price that can often uh, inflict upon, the damage that can inflict upon their domestic uh, setup. However, you're so right, Michal, of course we, Certainly today, we can't read these verses without hearing it. Not to say that this is what Miriam and Aharon 
did originally mean, putting an undue focus on on the the Kushite background of Moshe's wife. But how can we not can we not hear it? Certainly, right. And I think what I, what I find really fascinating and, and and important in this pasuk actually is that even if we don't know what Miriam was saying and what her intention was, the second that you mention someone's racial or ethnic background, you know, for, seemingly for no reason, uh, it already brings up questions. Like, wh- why are you bringing it up? What are you trying to, to communicate um, To communicate with this? Uh, and right now we're having a lot of conversations about, um, you know, explicit bias, uh, implicit bias. Um, what does it mean when we are, when we know that we're saying things that are problematic and when we don't realize uh, that we're saying things that might hurt or, or oppress others. Um, so, so those are definitely, I think, important questions that this pasuk can bring up, uh, you know, even while recognizing that there's different layers to this episode and different ways to approach the text. You're, you're reminding me of a, a Facebook post which was written a couple of days ago by somebody uh, I, I knew when we lived in Israel, who lives in Alon Shvut, who, who wrote such a powerful piece. I shared it if anyone is friends with me and wants to look at it. His name is Aaron Fraser. And he wrote that it's been heartening for him to see how many Jews, both individuals and communities, have, have joined protests in, in America and across the world uh, in, in recent days. But he, he, he actually pushed us a lot further, and he said that he's, he's worried that actually those protests are being joined and that support is being expressed because it's actually quite easy to do so. It doesn't come at much cost. But a much harder thing to do is to do some real some introspection into how in our own community, not talking about policing whatsoever, not talking about black communities in Minneapolis or elsewhere, but, but talking about within our own communities, how casually racism can slip in, whether to uh, black, uh, whether to black members of our community, whether to, whether vis-a-vis uh, Palestinians and Arabs, and it was a much harder pointed critique than anything I've seen until now. It really struck home, and I think your your reading of our parasha, Michal, with just that focus on Ishakushit and just making us listen. How are you talking about people? Is a critical is a critical message for now. Right, right. How are you talking? And I think also here, uh, how are you listening? Right, even if. Uh... Miriam is the one who initiates the conversation. Aaron is with her and listening. Uh, and not, if I'm using modern language and reading in this, into this text a lot, if you, if you allow me for a second, uh, Aaron is listening and not necessarily um, protesting. Uh, right, right. So I think that's, that's a question that I think is really critical for all of us, uh, wherever we are, right? Whatever our communities look like, some communities might be uh, progressive and liberal, other communities might be socially conservative. Uh, and what would it mean for us to actually take seriously the, the need for, for inclusivity, uh, to do anti-racist work um, in a way that, is, that has integrity and that, uh, and that demands that we look internally and that we ask what are ways that each of us can, can move forward um, and bring about a, a better society. I wonder, that's beautiful, and I wonder if one even might want to write one's own midrash. I don't think this midrash exists, 
but to note that not only is it that Miriam speaks to Aharon about Moshe's Kushit wife, but her punishment is not just Tzarat, her punishment is Mitzurat Kashalek, that her skin turns a, an extreme white, the, the Tzarat is, is a white, and perhaps you know, it's, it's something to, to, to sort of think of within this passage that uh, Miriam is, uh, is forced to confront her own skin um, and that that is a lesson for her and certainly for us to think about uh, the words we use, the way in which we speak of ourselves, the way in which we, we speak of we speak of others. I think that that's, uh, that's really powerful and really beautiful. And, and you know, Rabbi Joe, I, um, I think it's so good to sit down and learn to write together, um, even while so many things are happening in the streets of our country. Uh, I find there to be a spiritual need to bring those streets into our Torah learning and to allow that to, to move our, our you know, religious identities and to also bring our Torah and let it influence uh, with its moral um, voice uh, what's happening um, what's happening in our in our world, uh, and hopefully in this way we can continue to move forward. Thank you so much, Michal. The Torah is both a respite for us from the storm on the outside, but also the nourishment which we need and take in order to think how we respond to that storm. So this has been the Downtown Drash podcast, a project of the Bronfman Centre for Jewish Life, OUJLIC and the Downtown Minyan. Thank you so much for listening to our conversation. Please do join us again.